Hello and welcome to episode 248 of AvTalk. I am Ian Pechnik and this is our year-end episode. We're so grateful for everyone who has listened to the podcast this year. It has been an adventurous and eventful year, both good and bad, uh, and we had so much news to get through this year. On this episode, we'll take a look back, as we always do at the end of the year, on a few of our favorite conversations from 2023. First up, we have our conversation with former National Transportation Safety Board Chair Robert Sumwalt. We spoke with Sumwalt on episode 216 as he prepared to participate in the FAA's independent safety review team over the summer. The review team's report came out just a few weeks ago, and we've linked to that one in the show notes. Our conversation with Sumwalt takes place before the team's efforts, and we focus on aviation safety, generally speaking, how things were and are in the U.S., and how we can improve those things. Welcome back. After a recent spate of serious incidents, the Department of Transportation and the Federal Aviation Administration are refocusing on improving aviation safety in the U.S., with the FAA's acting administrator, Billy Nolan, recently saying that it's time to tighten the safety net. And so with that in mind, we welcome someone who knows aviation safety like almost no other, former National Transportation Safety Board Chair and current Executive Director of the Boeing Center for Aviation and Aerospace Safety at Embry-Riddle Aeronautical University, and now a member of the FAA's newly formed Independent Safety Review Team, Robert Sumwalt. Robert, thank you so very much for joining us today. Ian, thank you so much. It's great to be with you. Thank you. Thanks so much for joining. We've had a lot of interesting guests over the years, but I can safely say with no offense to anyone else that I've been looking forward to this interview probably the most of of any so far. So thank you so much for joining us. Well, gosh, that's quite a compliment. Thank you. But I'm actually very boring. So... Well, I mean, in the best of times, safety is a fairly boring topic. Unfortunately, we're not in the best of times. There have been a recent spate of serious incidents that I know that you followed and taken a close look at, as well as, I mean, the NTSB is investigating them now. And the FAA has taken it upon itself. There was a safety summit, which you participated in, and now you are part of the independent safety review team. So what has changed in the U.S. specifically over the past few years that has gotten us to where we are now that these things are necessary to be doing? Yeah, it's a great question. And I'm not sure that I have a good answer for it. I mean, if you look at commercial aviation in the United States, the U.S. airlines have had an exceptional safety record over the past several years, past two decades. But we have, as you pointed out, we have had some runway incursions. We've had some other scary events. And so in my mind, I can't really see a common thread woven throughout any of those. And so I think that is of concern is that we don't really know exactly what the problem is. But I do appreciate the FAA's efforts to really put the spotlight on it and see what we can do better. There is a lot of discussion about a year into the pandemic, about concerns, not just among aviation operators, not just among pilots, but also air traffic controllers, maintenance operators, and things like that, where we were seeing warnings coming from the FAA and EASA in Europe and the Australian Transportation Safety Bureau there saying, 
because of the dramatic decrease in kind of that muscle memory response of doing it every day, because there are so many fewer flights that we're concerned there could be an increase in in safety related incidences. And I'm wondering, do you see that that's part of what's playing into to kind of where we are now? You know, that may be some of the issue on the air traffic side. I understand that the FAA is down maybe 1,000, 1,200, maybe 1,500 controllers right now, and that could be related to the pandemic. But on the pilot side, yes, the airlines are hiring like crazy, and I guess that's a good thing. I was an airline pilot at one time and did that for 24 years. But, you know, I don't really buy that theory that the pandemic is leading to these issues or helping to contribute to these issues that we're seeing with runway incursions with airliners. You know, it doesn't take a pilot a year to wipe the dust off. You know, the pandemic, I mean, officially it ended a few days ago. The declaration, you know, declared the pandemic basically no longer a health problem, health issue, health emergency. But there have been massive pilot hiring now for the last year and a half. So it does not take a year to get recurrent in an airplane. I would go several weeks uh, without flying because I was doing safety work. And, you know, the first day I might have been a little rusty, but by the end of the first day, I kind of... I remembered how to do this thing. So I don't really buy that theory about the pandemic leading to these pilot deviations. So what does concern you most? What area are you kind of thinking along the lines of the safety review team that you're now part of with the FAA? What is the focus or is it just kind of taking a top-down look and starting at the top and working your way down or bottom up for that matter? Yeah, that's, you know, a lot of people think we're going to do be the end all be all for aviation safety. (laughs) And and that's not really correct. We are focused, we being the independent safety review team, we are focused just on air traffic services offered in the United States. So it's really looking at air traffic control to see if that is operating as optimally as it could. And the committee, the review team is just getting stood up. Our mandate is to have it done by the end of October. There's a lot of work. It'll be a busy summer, but we really are just getting cranked up there. It seems to be the common thread among a lot of these incidents that spurred the the spinning up of this review board was that a lot of these incidents all seem to be runway incursions or uh, taxiing aircraft not being where it's supposed to be, uh, causing a go-around or, or a pilot flight crew not taking off fast enough as they should be, creating a go-around behind them. Do you have just any gut feeling on why it seems like most of the incidents are happening on the ground rather than being something in the air, or a routing issue or, or just bad piloting. It just seems like it's what mostly just when the aircraft is on the ground. Do you have any theories into why that might be the case? You know, it's a really good question, Jason. I just wrote an article for Business and Commercial Aviation magazine on this very topic. And, you know, of the six or seven highly publicized runway incursions that we've seen since the first of the year, I would say that possibly two of them might be ATC related, one in Austin, Texas, and there was another one that might have some ATC involvement. But the rest of them do seem to be originating in the cockpit. And my article really was to say, guys, gals, it's time to get back to basics. Let's make sure 
that we are maintaining the sterile cockpit. Let's make sure that both pilots are listening to and understanding the taxi clearance. Let's make sure that we are monitoring and backing up each other as we are taxiing and that when we approach an active runway, we suspend all non-monitoring duties, such as loading the flight management computer or doing a checklist, that we suspend non-monitoring tasks until we've made sure that the airplane has stopped short of the runway or if you're cleared to cross, then you have verified that you are doing what you're supposed to do. So, so yes, I do think that regardless of the underlying issue, you can never go wrong by saying, let's get back to basics. That's a great point, and I feel like that's going to make its way into the final report of the safety review <laughs> team here. <laughs> well, we'll see. Kind of taking on Jason's question about the ground-based nature of a lot of these incidents, are there technology improvements or even just the application of existing technologies that you think would be more helpful in ensuring that these don't happen in the future? Yeah, I do think that technology has a lot of promise. I just had recently in the last day or so, I had a briefing from an avionics manufacturer who's working on some artificial intelligence that can help a pilot safely navigate to and from a runway. And I think that there's a lot of promise with technology like that. But it still goes back to the people in the cockpit to make sure that they are properly following the taxi instructions and the whole short instructions and making darn sure that they are really cleared for takeoff. Two of the events have been airplanes actually taking off without clearance. So, you know, those are interesting cases. So to answer your question, yeah, I think that there is technology that offers promise. And I hope that, that technology can be implemented sooner rather than later. And it's a great point since I guess in the rest of our lives, if you're driving a car or even riding a bike, you set navigation and you kind of just go wherever the device in front of you tells you where to go. And we, if you've ever played Microsoft Flight Simulator and done an actual flight, they have an overlay on the taxiways that navigates you where you're supposed to go. And I guess it is just an odd situation where technology navigating the aircraft on the ground lags so far behind everyday life and everything else we do. It would be very interesting to see how the industry could possibly adopt something that would help pilots navigate the more complex airports. I know one of the the major, more popular incidents, I guess I would say, was that American 777 at JFK, where even though American is hubbed at JFK and their pilots are very accustomed to the air traffic control chatter and the taxiway navigation there, it's possible for them to make a mistake. So maybe, yeah, I would love to see something in the recommendations about how they can use technology to help pilots navigate on the ground rather than just in the air. Well, you are right. And certainly just like automation in the cockpit, flight deck, you know, automation, autopilots, auto throttles, we've seen cases of over-dependence, over-reliance on that. I think it's also important is that as this new technology is rolled out, that we don't become overly dependent on it. We're using it as a as an aid, a guide, not solely the right thing. I think that years ago, there was a probably nationwide advertisement or Allstate or one of the car, car insurance companies 
And the GPS was uh, saying, you know, turn right. And the guy turned right immediately into a, you know, into a building, into a plate glass window. <laughs> and so I think that we do have to be very careful that we are. We're still using what's between the ears to make sure we're doing the right things. I guess what we're talking about here is really a balance between helpful implementation of technology and still maintaining situational awareness. And like you mentioned, there's no shortage of incidents where the thing that was supposed to help and on balance has certainly increased the safety and efficiency of aviation has led to an incident. So I guess to Jason's point, maybe you know, ways on the flight deck is not necessarily the best thing. Yeah, but it can certainly be an aid. And certainly I want it to make sure that it points out where the latest speed trap is. (laughs) (laughs) They're going to get a lot of Southwest flights in that regard then. That's right. (laughs) You know, and to Jason's point, I mean, you know, he's talking about American Airlines being, uh, you know, having a a big operation there at, uh, at Kennedy and all. You know, there was this one event and one event is certainly one too many. But I do think that, that, you know, want to emphasize that most of the time, Day in and day out, week in, week out, month in, month out, airplanes international airspace system are operating very safely without incident. So uh, I think that it's important to point out the positive side of it as well. And that's probably why these events get so popularized, that we're just so accustomed to this industry being almost ridiculously safe, that that even the hint that something possibly could have gone wrong just gets so reported because we're just so not used to that happening. Yeah, I guess that's a product of our own success. You know, I started reading NTSB accident reports when I was in college. So to, to, to indicate my age, I'll just say that was in the, uh, in the 70s, in the late 70s, go to the library and read the accident reports. And there were, you know, there were several three and four major airline accidents in this country each year. And now, if you look at the last major U.S. airline fatality through a smoking hole, have to go back to November of 2001 when there was an American 587 crashed outside of uh, coming out of Kennedy. And so, and of course, then there was the Colgan Air crash in 2009, which killed 50 people. And then, unfortunately, uh, there was a woman who lost her life in 2018 when a Southwest Airlines had a, uh, it was not really an uncontained engine failure technically, but I'll call it that. It was an engine failure where a piece of uh, shrapnel, a piece of the cowling flew off of the uh, engine and it banged into the side of the fuselage, knocked out a window, and unfortunately, a lady partially went out with that. So if you look at the last smoking hole of a major U.S. carrier, you go back to 2001. If you look at the last regional airline accident, you go back to 2009. So it has been an extraordinary record, and I certainly am knocking on a lot of wood right now because we've got to, as I said, one is one too many. The thing I wanted to ask you about specifically into to runway incursions, because that's really what the, the most recent collection of incidents has been, either, either an actual runway incursion or a potential runway incursion. Looking at the, the numbers, there seems to be variation in quarterly variation, variation among different types of carriers, but there's no huge spike. There's no kind of outlier going, oh, this is a a very new and real problem we have. So I'm wondering kind of 
coming from the FAA's perspective and your interactions with them, are they feeling like this is a new problem or is this just something they're going, okay, let's do all we can to understand if there are in fact any new problems or if we just need to reinforce everything we've already learned? You know, I really can't, uh, and I appreciate that question. I really cannot speak for the FAA on what their motivations are, but I think they are trying to do due diligence and making sure that there's nothing out there that they don't know about in terms of how the uh, the functionality of the uh, air traffic control system is operating in the U.S. So let's jump forward to, to October then when the group's work is is set to to wrap up. What's the final product going to look like at, at this point or is that not yet known? That's not yet known. We will have a, a meeting, a teleconference, a Zoom conference uh, this afternoon and then another one tomorrow afternoon. We've uh, only met once already and uh, we're just formulating it will be a busy summer with i imagine some visits to air traffic control facilities meetings zoom calls it's an aggressive time frame and we all know how the ntsb usually works you investigate you make recommendations that are purely recommendations that the faa can choose to either mandate or unfortunately to the ntsb's dismay often not implement what happens with this panel, since it's not just the NTSB involved here, it's a whole suite of people from all over the industry. What's the, not the outcome, but is anything here, are they recommendations? Are they action items? What's really the, maybe not the output, but are, are they recommendations that the FAA then looks at to implement? Or, or what do you expect to, to happen in October? We're still in the formulative stages of the review team. But I would imagine that it would be a series of recommendations. That's what I would envision it would be. It's not just an exercise to see what we can do. I think we're going to, we've got some very smart people on the review team. I think we'll come up with something actionable for the FAA. The review team, I just want to, to note kind of who else is on the review team. Besides yourself, we've got a former NASA administrator, Charles Bolden Jr., former Airline Pilots Association president, former National Air Traffic Controllers Association executive vice president, FAA chief operating officer, or former FAA chief operating officer, and former FAA administrator. So it's a broad swath collection from, from across the industry. Are you also going to be pulling kind of other folks in to assist with things? Or is it just going to be all of you folks just getting out there and, and spending the summer figuring out what is going on? Yeah, I certainly think we're going to have to pull, pull, uh, pull in uh, experts and interview them, and they will help put the puzzle together for us in terms of laying out the pieces. And then it will be up, up to us to put the pieces together and figure out what needs to be done. So- Putting the next few months into context, is there anything that you personally are looking forward to looking into further, or you already have some inklings in mind of things that you think are threads that you want to pull for, for the next few months? You know, it's like when I was at the NTSB, you don't want to go into something with preconceived notions. You want to allow the facts to speak for themselves and then conduct a, a thorough analysis based on those facts. I think that's the approach that I'm going into this with. 
We have been speaking with former National Transportation Safety Board Chair and current Executive Director of the Boeing Center for Aviation and Aerospace Safety at Embry-Riddle Aeronautical University, Robert Sumwalt. He is spending the summer, a very busy summer it sounds like, as part of the FAA's new Independent Safety Review Team. Hopefully, we can have you back in the fall and we can hear more about what came out of the panel's work. Well, thank you. We'd be delighted to do that. Thank you so much. This is not a paid endorsement for Flight Radar 24, but before we went on the air, I told you that I I love it. I have it on my phone when I'm at Embry-Riddle at home at at Embry-Riddle. I will look and see if that's one of our birds flying above. And so uh, I enjoy very much what I get from Flight Radar 24. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be with you. Thank you so much for joining us. Robert Sumwalt, it's been a real pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much for joining us. And we close the year with the conversation that topped nearly everyone's list. We had more listener emails about this episode than any other by far. In November, North Atlantic Airways became the first airline to bring a 787 to Antarctica. The aircraft landed on the Blue Ice Runway at Troll Airfield, carrying researchers and equipment to Troll Research Station, operated by the Norwegian Polar Institute. A few weeks after the flight, we sat down with Norse Fleet Chief Pilot and Captain of that flight, Olav Lindström, to learn how the airline and crew prepared for the historic flight. Welcome back. We are now joined by Olaf Lindstrom, who is the fleet chief pilot of Norse Atlantic Airways. We've talked about Norse Atlantic in the past for their low-cost model and being a successful low-cost long-haul fleet, but this is a very different conversation. Olaf is the captain who commanded the flight from Cape Town to Troll Station in Antarctica. We've talked in the past with Sven Lidstrom from the Norwegian Polar Institute about how they run the airport there, but now we get to hear the opposite perspective or the incoming perspective, I guess we should say, about how you operate an aircraft there. So, Olaf, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much. So what I'm really keen to learn about, and we've had some questions from listeners as well, is beyond the ice runway, what makes operating an aircraft to Antarctica, what makes that flight unique? And I know we can break down some of the differences between a normal flight and and operating this. So I guess, do we start with the flight plan? Is that a good place to start? Or you tell me where we should start. I think we can start even earlier than that. So sure. we're flying the first 787 to Antarctica and we're landing, as far as I know, the first time a 787 on an ice runway. So in the initial stage of the planning, we just wanted to make sure, of course, that an ice runway can handle a 787. We suspected that the answer was yes, because there's been a lot of studies in the past on uh, bearing strength of glacier ice. That glacier is 700 meters thick, and the elevation is 4,000 feet. So that sort of gives an idea of how thick that glacier is. And unlike sea ice, for example, this is very strong. So we did a study on that, and we came to the conclusion that we had a safety margin of maybe 10 to 20 times the required strength. Oh, wow. And then, of course, other things like braking action. Other airlines have been flying there in the past. So again, we suspected that it should be no problem. But that's also something that we studied carefully, of course. Now, it is clearly different from flying from, say, Oslo to JFK, because you're flying into a part of the world where there's 
very little support. So in terms of fire rescue, for example, or if we back up even further in terms of search and rescue on the way there, if we have had an issue on the way from Cape Town, this is a five and a half hour flight. So you're flying in a part of the world where there is very little support. And that is something that we also ran numerous risk assessments on. And for the fire rescue at the station, they had previously, of course, serviced smaller aircraft. So we had to also study that carefully that the equipment and the training they had was sufficient for an airplane of our size. And then it's an ETOPS flight. So it's at the same time as it's very, very complex and very different, it's also very similar. So we've planned as an ETOPS flight. And we have in North Atlantic Norway, we have 180 minute ETOPS. And these rings, they are 1,202 nautical miles. And the distance between Cape Town and Troll is approximately double that. I think we had a, they overlapped by about 70 miles. So <laughs> not not a, a huge margin. No, not a huge margin, but still plenty enough for that. So there is already a little bit of margin built into those circles as well. But the distances are quite crazy. So if you were to flip this to perhaps some listeners are more used to the Northern Hemisphere, it is similar to, imagine you have a polar station on the North Pole and it's up there by uh, Svalbard and, and not in most Norway. It would be as if we serviced it from the northern coast of Africa. So it's like taking off from, say, Tunisia and flying towards the North Pole. Those are the sort of distances that we're talking about here. So what are the alternate airfields when you're flying Cape Town to Troll? Because there's there's nothing in between the two. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, the alternates are Cape Town and Troll on the flight plan. We filed that flight plan as an ETOPS flight plan with Cape Town being the alternate on one side and Troll being the alternate on the other side. Now, we do check the weather at some of the other airfields that are down in Antarctica, but they are not really suitable for us. They would be just worst case scenario that we could maybe divert to there. But we can get back to that a little bit onwards that the, the weather forecasting is extremely important for this sort of operation. When we fly Oslo to JFK, I mean, 99% of the time the flight can depart. It's rarely an issue with weather unless you have an ice storm or a hurricane. But about 50% of all the flights that depart from Cape Town to service the various stations in Antarctica, they are delayed because of weather. And we had a delay as well, about 15 hours due to weather. Right, right. I mean, that's fascinating to me that the alternates can be, I mean, obviously you can always turn back if you need to, but... When we talked with Sven Listen from Norwegian Polar Institute about the weather forecasting on their part, because I know that they, you know, really only operate in fair weather conditions. Yeah. What does that look like from the flight planning side? Because I know they're taking readings from various stations around Antarctica as well as their own. So is that information coming to you directly or is that pulled from just kind of your normal flight planning facilities? With help from the Polar Institute, we use a service provider, a weather forecast provider named Storm Geo. And they provided us with weather briefings over Teams. So it was over a video call starting 10 days prior to the flight and then five days prior and then just in the hours prior to the flight. And they gave us the whole sort of lowdown on all the details on that weather. Because there are such high requirements for the weather, you really do not want to depart Cape Town if the weather looks like it's questionable or even if there's any sort of doubt, then it's much better to delay the flight 
and wait for better weather. So I want to come back to the flight plan for a second. How many waypoints are there? Because we've seen, let's kind of keep with the Oslo JFK flight. There's, you've got your SID on departure, and then there's, you know, probably a few waypoints before you hit the North Atlantic. And then you've got your North Atlantic crossing points. And then, you know, New York's a mess. So there's probably 270, 275 waypoints before you get to JFK. What's it look like from Cape Town to, is it just... The Cape Town SID and then direct troll? More or less. So it is the Cape <laughs> Town. It is the Cape Town as SID. And as pilots, of course, we love the word direct. So normally you would if you get a direct, you would accept it immediately. But for this flight, it is already filed more or less direct. But we also put specifically in our procedures that we do not accept direct routing because we want to be able to plot our points along the way. So if you accept the direct to uh, direct to troll, then you can't really refer back to the flight plan as such. So Ah, interesting. So what happens is, I think there's just one or two waypoints out of Cape Town. Lovely airport, by the way, really fantastic people working there. And you take off and you just turn south and there's one waypoint. And before that waypoint, you call up uh, Johannesburg Oceanic and you connect to the CPDLC. And from that moment on, it's very similar to a North Atlantic flight with they mainly with, with CPDLC as a way to communicate with the control. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, I guess that makes sense that, you know, the, with CPDLC being available, that's what you would use over whatever oceanic crossing you're making. So you're approaching Antarctica. At what point do you switch over to communicating with troll directly? So the flight is about five hours. And as you flying over the continent, you start doing the broadcast. It's a blind broadcast similar to what we use over Africa and some other parts of the world, so that if there are other aircraft in the area, then they would know that you're around. Leaving the flight level is a free text message to Johannesburg saying, hello there, we're starting our descent now. There's very little traffic in the area, so they follow you. It is their airspace, but once you start descending, you're sort of on your own. And about 40 minutes prior to arrival, you can reach Troll Station. And there are two radios here. There's Troll Station and Troll Airfield. So the station is the polar station, and they have a much better antenna and much better range. They provide us with the weather, a latest weather update. And then as you get closer on the same frequency, you're now talking to uh, Troll Airfield, which is basically a walkie-talkie in a Toyota Hilux. I actually have the picture of you landing on the runway and in the foreground is the gentleman holding the walkie-talkie exactly. standing standing next to the runway. We received some video from the Norwegian Polar Institute and part of that video was the departure as well where you're communicating with the, I'll call it the departure controller. But again, it's just him standing on next to the runway with the walkie-talkie. I found that amusing. Yeah, it's very rare. I mean, it's so different from anything else. That's uh similar what you would perhaps do if you fly a, a Cessna somewhere and land on a small airfield. But I think it's quite rare that you get, we don't get clear to land. They give us, the runway is clear. But I think it's quite rare to get runway clear. You may land uh, in a 787 from a guy on a walkie-talkie. <laughs> exactly. What is the approach briefing like? What are the things that you're considering? I'm sure a lot of it's the same because the 787 is a 787 no matter where you're landing, but a nice runway is a bit different. So, so how does that approach briefing differ? From the start of the project, we wanted to make sure that everything that we do 
is as close as possible. Just like you say, it's a 787 and we want things to be, our procedures to be as close as possible to what we normally do. That was sort of the starting point. And we assumed that even though we keep everything as normal as possible, the fact that we're flying to Antarctica, there will be, still be items that are not normal. So one thing we did was we ensured that we had some sort of GPS approaches and the Polar Institute have developed some basic approach procedures, some basic approaches into troll. And we had Jeppesen is our shark provider, and they created these tailor-made approach charts for us for runway 27 and runway 09 in troll. Those procedures were then also coded into our FMS. So just like an approach into, uh, you select the RNAV approach into JFK, you can do the same thing here. You just select the approach. And then like I said, it's the briefing is, is very similar to a normal briefing. But of course, when you come to the threat and error part of things, where, where you try to identify the possible threats and, and how you're going to mitigate it, that's when things are, you realize that you're, you're flying to something that is not JFK. <laughs> There's a few differences. But what's it like landing on the ice runner? Is it any different than a normal landing? It's a little bit different. So there are no real edge lights and there's no approach lights and you're landing on a cleared strip on the ice. We, uh, in the weather forecast, we look for, apart from all the regular stuff with wind and, and cloud and visibility and such, they also report contrast and horizon. And uh, horizon is important because with a, a poor horizon, when you get lower, the glacier and the sky sort of blur together. And it would be very difficult looking out in a flare, for example, to look out and see where the horizon is. So we want to see at least moderate to good horizon before we even attempt the approach and actually before we even decide to depart Cape Town. Contrast is another one. If you have a low cloud layer, an overcast, you don't really get any shadows and then everything sort of blurs together a little bit. So that's different. The other thing that is, is quite different is that it's a very wide runway. They clear almost... 100 meters or 90 meters. That means the perspective is quite different. Most pilots know that there's a difference landing on a standard runway. If, if there's a wider runway in the flare, your perspective is different. Same thing if you're landing on a more narrow runway, the perspective is different. So that is something to be aware of. It doesn't really make it more difficult, but it, it's something to be aware of before the landing. The landing itself very similar to a normal landing. The moment you touch down, it looks very smooth and the touchdown is very smooth. But the moment you're down, ice is, and especially ice on a glacier, is not as smooth as, as tarmac. So there is a bit of vibration after touchdown. You're in Antarctica with a 787 for the first time ever. Is it just, okay, now we turn off the plane or do you leave it on? Because you're not on the ground for all that long. I think you were, you were down there for just a few hours. So what was that procedure like? We spent a lot of time discussing this in risk assessments prior. What we did as pilots is just a small part, of course, ground ops and technical is a big part of this. And again, we wanted to keep everything as normal ops as possible. One of the items that were discussed in detail were the reliability of the APU. So fortunately, the 787, the, the APU on the 787 has a fantastic track record. I've flown this aircraft for 10 years now, and I don't think I've ever had an APU problem. But you don't want that APU problem to happen when you're down in Antarctica because you need the APU to start the engines. They have ground power units, but they aren't really strong enough for a 787. So we packed it off the runway, came to a parking, we shut down our engines, 
and we left the APU running. And the APU performed great, as expected. But we did have a spare kit with us. So we had two engineers, and those engineers, they had brought with them what we call a, a flyaway kit. And that flyaway kit had APU controllers and various APU spare parts in case there had been some issues with that APU. Interesting. And then you've unloaded using Volvo front end loader, which I absolutely find fascinating how you, you know, deal with cargo because that that was one of the questions we got is like how do you get the cargo off the plane because obviously they don't have cargo loaders or anything like that and you just use a Volvo front end loader. So then you're all buttoned up and what's the departure like? So just briefly on that front loader because sure. it's, it's quite interesting our head of ground ops, when he first heard of it, he was like, absolutely not. You're not taking that front loader next to my aircraft. <laughs> For good reason. There is there's quite a bit of risk sure. involved with that. But here is where the Polar Institute is so great. So we said, if we're going to offload heavy cargo, because we brought down a radar antenna, for example. That radar antenna, it was very heavy. It was uh, about 450 kilos, about 1,000 pounds. And in order to get it off, we needed to use the front loader. So in order for them to use it safely, they needed a, a carefully crafted procedure. And they also built a special platform that was uh, attached to that front loader. So at no point did the front loader actually sort of move into the aircraft. They just parked it in front and they were able to roll off the, the crate with that radar antenna. And yeah, it's, that's a completely different story, but it's, it was quite <laughs> fascinating as a pilot to see that part of the operation, how detailed they had that procedure. So then you've got the doors closed, you're ready to start the engines. How does that work? Is it any different than just, okay, it's time to go? It was a little bit different. We worked closely with Boeing on this project, and there are some minimum oil temperatures that you want to see before. When you start up, the oil is cold, and then after it, it takes a few turns in the engine and, and it starts warming up. But they recommended a warm-up of 18 minutes, which is something that we normally don't really do. And so we started our engines and we waited for, for 18 minutes. So we started taxing out after after about 10 minutes. But in general, very much like a, a normal normal departure, you have to be careful when you taxi. It's a little bit slippery, but not too bad. The, the braking action on an ice runway, surprisingly, the way they prepare it is very similar to that of wet tarmac. So you got braking action good almost. That's fascinating. I didn't think about this and because I've never taxied an airplane on ice, but I guess it makes sense that the taxiing is a little bit slippery. <laughs> yeah, especially in turns. Yeah. So your takeoff is normal. And then how do you get back to Cape Town? Are you, do you just kind of pop up on Johannesburg Oceanic and say, we're back? And they say, great. And then it's just a normal flight into Cape Town? More or less. Yeah. And, and there's an interesting point here as well, which is also extremely rare for a 787, but quite normal if you fly a Cessna in the, in the backcountry. And that is after landing, we had to make sure that they closed our flight plan. And this is when you fly a Cessna, it's quite common. You land in a small field somewhere. If you got flight following, you want to make sure that the flight plan is closed because that way they know you're safely on the ground. And that's the exact same thing we he had here. We landed in Troll, and then we had to make sure that everyone knew that we had safely landed because there is no normal air traffic control in, in Troll. And the same thing then goes on, on, on departure. We depart. And they activate the flight plan for us over the phone. The station calls to Johannesburg and they activate the flight plan. And the moment we're airborne, we connect back to CPDLC. And, and if the CPDLC connects, that means that the flight plan has been activated. If it does not connect, it means that they, they're still working on activating the flight plan. 
And then at some point, you call up again to do a, a radio check on HF. And from that moment on, it's, it's like a, a normal arrival into Cape Town. Fascinating. I've really enjoyed learning about this because there's been some questions that I've had for quite some time, just in general about flying to troll and then to be able to talk about those with the captain of the first 787 flight landing in Antarctica. That was very exciting for me. So Captain Olaf Lindstrom, who is the fleet chief pilot of North Atlantic Airways, commanded the first 787 flight to land in Antarctica and on any ice runway that we believe. So very, very good to speak with you. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much. It was great to be here. Welcome back. Thank you again to everyone who has listened to one or all of our episodes this year and for the past six years. We truly appreciate all of you and we look forward to an adventurous 2024. I am Ian Pechnik and from all of us at Flight Radio 24, happy tracking.